You're listening to episode 46 of Pass the Chipotle, the best beats of 2019. I'm your host, Rocío Carvajal, food history writer, cook, and author. And on this podcast, I explore the gastronomic traditions of Mexico and bring together the voices of cooks, authors, and entrepreneurs who build cross-cultural bridges around the world, championing Mexican food. To find more information about the podcast, please go to pasdechipotle.com. You can subscribe, rate, and leave a review of the show using your favorite podcast app. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this special episode with the best bits of the interviews I've had on the show over the past year. If you are a new listener, this will be a great chance to discover what this show is all about. And if you're a long-time listener, this will be a great treat to revisit the work, perspectives and stories of my guests, what motivates their work and how they continuously challenge views about Mexican foods and traditions while bringing a vibrant spirit of gastronomic renewal. For the past year, I had the pleasure to interview and present to you the work of food tour specialist Anais Martinez from Mexico City, cookbook author, blogger, brand ambassador and food activist Yvette Marquez Sharpnack, based in Colorado, chef and founder of Salsaology Lori Sandoval from Los Angeles, California, food entrepreneur and tamale expert Saul Talavera from Las Vegas, chef, brand ambassador, and cookery teacher Silvia Vavik from Oslo, Norway, food anthropologist and food consultant Jolene Benjamin, who is based in Toronto, Canada, food entrepreneur and founder of Macienda Jorge Gaviria, based in Los Angeles, anthropologist and author of Frida Kahlo at Home, Susan Barbesat from Oaxaca, Mexico. Food historian, author, speaker, blogger, and experimental cook, Ken Albala. And finally, chef, author, Mexican confectionery expert, and founder of La New Yorkina and Dough Donuts, Fanny Gerson. Personally, I find compiling this special episode as a great opportunity to reflect on how the show has evolved as a platform to explore Mexican food under a completely different light. This is my own way to open to new and exciting ways to prompt conversations, inspire you, and help you find new ways to rediscover Mexico's enormous gastronomic heritage through the work of my amazing guests. I enjoyed enormously each and every interview and also putting together this episode for you. I hope you enjoy it too. I will begin with a slightly different take. I am aware that I very rarely talk about myself over the show, and yet it is natural that there's a lot of my own perspectives in it. So, the short version behind how I became a food history writer and producer of this show 
is that as a communicator, medievalist, educator, museum practitioner, internationalist, food photographer and researcher, I find myself always being particularly drawn to observe the social dynamics around cultural rituals of conviviality, meaning how people get together and specifically the role that food plays in this. While my somehow unconventional background would seem like an obstacle to specialize, I instead find that is precisely that what makes it very easy for me to navigate through many disciplines and find commonalities to draw a bigger picture to understand food traditions and specifically those from my own home country, that is Mexico. It shouldn't really come as a surprise that the types of challenges that food professionals can face in their own homelands are very, very different when they're trying to reproduce the same food, but in another country. Because inevitably, food also becomes almost the embodiment of a country's cuisine. And for many, this is an opportunity to educate others about how traditional foods differ from oversimplified versions, to sort of lay a foundation to have a rich conversation about how cuisines are perceived and interpreted is not always as simple or as straightforward as Lori Sandoval, the founder of Salsaology, found in the early days of building her business in LA. I guess it was a form also of maybe appropriating the word salsa because Like you mentioned, it means so much to us in the Mexican, Spanish, culinary language. It basically just means any type of sauce. And I wanted to appropriate that correctly so that it didn't just mean the fresh condiment that it's commonly just automatically known for here. When I first started telling people, people were very confused. Um, everyone told me, well, you should have changed it to sauceology. This feedback was always an opportunity to respond with letting them know, like you said, informing them that salsa means soft. And over the years, it really has become almost a motto for us. In fact, I think it's one of our hashtags used and it's salsa means sauce. Our t-shirts have it, promotional literature has it, just three words pretty much depicts what we mean and why we named it salsaology. And they're starting to look at the cuisine as a whole differently. Slowly, you know, they're going to tell someone or they're going to recognize it, you know, the next time they see it. But it's always really exciting to see their reactions when you tell them, you know, no, salsa means sauce. People from the beginning told me would be an uphill battle for me. It's something that I have taken and turned into something positive to be able to help spread that message. You know, we're going to keep sharing um, regional flavors. The goal is always for us to honor the heritage and the recipes of, of my ancestors. That kind of just is always that underlying vein. My work has also evolved and shifted in many ways. And when I started creating culinary experiences, where I get to take my clients to explore any traditional foods from my home state of Puebla and understand the history, ingredients and traditions behind it, I found that this created a completely different set of challenges and also opportunities. And in a very similar way, food tour specialist Anais Martinez, based in Mexico City, also developed a very unique take in her work 
and she is a firm believer that in order to understand and know intimately a cuisine, you have to experience it from within. This is what she said about that. We have so many regionality, so many different ingredients everywhere and then techniques and words that we use for things. We have so many different indigenous groups here that it that translates into food and now you're going to get a very different taco in Oaxaca or in Baja, right? I think that for me is just, mm-hmm. you make them understand how big the country is as well. Other thing is like, I think like the thing that I was telling you before, since almost everyone comes with me right after or before going to the fancy restaurants, uh, I also want them to know where everything comes from. That, I think, is a really important thing now. It's like, okay, you're going there. You're going to see this mole. This is the, the the normal, let's say, like, quote, unquote. Mm-hmm. You're going to try an enhanced version, how that is different from what regular people do. This is it. So I think those, if people, after being with me, understand those three things, I think, like, I can call it a day. Being a culinary ambassador is a job that I also take with a great sense of fun and responsibility. And I use this approach through the breadth of my work. And like me, there are hundreds of people whose passion for Mexican food has taken them to places and situations they had never imagined to the point that they have even become a national culinary icon. And that is the case of Chef Silvia Bavik, based in Oslo, Norway. My journey, my mission started to teach the Norwegian community what Mexican food was. I, I feel so strongly about my movement with authentic Mexican food. Few people knew about me and then somebody contacted me and was like, looking for contestants for this show, you would be perfect for it. Do you want to do it? Yes. Of course I want to do it. Because that was one way of me being able to show Mexican cuisine nationally. That's why I said yes. Definitely a big challenge. There was no recipes allowed. Uh, everything was pretty much on spot. In every challenge, it was like some sort of a Mexican inspiration. And that's what really won the judges, the flavors of the plates, the presentation, and a lot about the story behind it. You know, you when I cook, I put in my love. I put in my passion. You taste me. My winning was that everybody was going to be able to see me. They were going to get to know Chef Sylvia. They were getting to know my movement. That's how I won. After the show, it was like being contacted to do uh, television appearances. And I became known nationally as the Mexican food expert. I've had so many uh, amazing opportunities. Uh, I was also uh, two years in a row judging the Norwegian taco championships. So I am officially a taco and Mexican cuisine expert. (laughs) So I, I think that's all so much fun. It's really given me uh, so much success and, and just, you know, made it the level even higher. One of the big commonalities across the trajectory of my guests is that attached to their passion for Mexican food, there is a very personal connection attached to it. And for some, it's about taking ownership of their heritage. And for others, it's a means to express their creativity. But there are other cases where they see this as a way to reinvent themselves at the same time as they experiment and reinterpret Mexican food. And this is what Saúl Talavera shared about this. It was definitely hard just to come up to a total stranger in a parking lot and ask them if they like tamales. You know, they'd look at you like, well, what do you mean? You know, and 
they're going to say no. I, I knew that for a fact because, you know, there's there's people out there slanging tamales out of their trunks and they were just poorly made. So, yeah, it was very hard to try to get people to even believe that these tamales were coming from me, you know, because they, they'd see me and they're like, oh, who makes them? Once I said me, it was like, uh, oh, no, thanks. He's tatted up. He's bearded. Uh, he probably just labeled me from, from my appearance. And, you know, so it was definitely hard to even get people to try them. Now, to get people to buy them was even a bigger challenge. I came to different, you know, local businesses in my area and just offered free samples. It, it, that didn't work. You know, slowly, slowly people started, okay, yeah, he, these are they're good tamales. And even at, at the time, I was just starting. I, I didn't know exactly what I was doing. But then I started social media and started reaching out to more people and, and just trying to provide something for everyone. You know, there's a lot of people eating clean nowadays. A lot of people don't eat certain meats. A lot of people are turning into, you know, vegetarians and vegans. And, you know, you, you got to have something for everyone. And I think that's that was the most important part as far as pushing it to different um, cultures and still keeping that Mexican tradition flavors, but doing something a little different as well. Something that's just going to catch their attention to, oh, well, I want to try that. That looks good. That sounds good, you know. Across every culture, every society, and within every human, we all share the same troubling genes because migrations are a part of who we are as humans. But in our modern-day culture, the motives behind our decisions to migrate are seldom based on the sheer joy to travel. That, of course, is the case of millions of people who risk everything to build a better life. As a Mexican, the topic of migration is one very close to home. But in spite of the challenges and vicissitudes of emigrating to a different country, one of the wonderful things we can actually bring with us is our cultural heritage, and of course, our food traditions, and the meaning attached to them. For Yvette Marquez Sharpnack, food writing and vlogging gives her the means to continue to celebrate and expand on her own family traditions, but also is a chance to share that with thousands of her readers that are part of the same proverbial big familia. Sharing food in Mexico, you see, isn't restricted to sitting together at the table. It is also a way to bridge us with the relatives and friends that we have lost along the way. And this is what Yvette shared about her award-winning film to celebrate Dia de los Muertos, the Day of the Dead. So it's, it's a beautiful video that I'm completely proud of. And for it to win an Emmy was I, I mean, it, that that part doesn't even feel real. It's just funny. Like, But just to have my kids a part of it now, I mean, for them to be able to understand what the holiday all, is all about, but at the same time, telling it in their way, you know, makes it special. And I think what I love to hear is from teachers or museums or people in the educational field who are using our videos, my videos for Dia de los Muertos to share what the holiday is all about. And that's amazing in itself. As very modern people, we can say today that all cultural manifestations, including art and food, are self-referential, which means that they, quote-unquote, obviously reflect a creator's own lives and feelings and personal history. But this natural assumption wasn't always a commonplace, and there have been times when this came across as a surprise. 
One of the most recognizable icons of Mexican painting is no doubt Frida Kahlo. She was a passionate cook and a wonderful hostess who delighted in elevating everyday meals into special events of togetherness. So I sat with one of the world-leading experts on Frida Kahlo, Suzanne Barbersat, to explore more about this. And interestingly, like she had a good relationship with Lupe, Diego's former wife. Um, but it was Lupe who kind of taught her to cook because when she first got married, she was pretty clueless about all of that. So Lupe taught her how to prepare some of Diego's favorite dishes. And then Frida would prepare a basket of food to take to him while he was at work. And because Diego was a workaholic, he wouldn't stop for lunch. So she would join him on the scaffold and they would eat together. So I think that was really one of the ways that she expressed her love. And then as she got older, she became more and more interested in house and home and preparing food to demonstrate her affection. And I think hospitality was really important to her, as it is for Mexicans in general, right? To greet guests warmly, to feed them well, and really make them feel welcome in, in your home. You know, she would decorate the table for meals. And it was, you know, an effort to make the whole experience pleasurable. So it's not just about the food, it's about the whole environment. So um, the kitchen at the Blue House, it's a very cheerful and welcoming space. It's so colorful. Uh, the floor and table are bright yellow, and the traditional Mexican stove is blue with yellow and blue tiles. And and then the tiles continue in a pattern up the wall. And although it was common during that time in that social class to cook with gas, they preferred to keep a traditional wood stove. As many people in Mexico will tell you, food tastes much better when it's cooked on a wood fire. Yeah. And of course, they, you know, all they had all the implements that you find in a traditional Mexican kitchen, clay pots of all sizes from huge to tiny and wooden implements, spoons and molinillos, the wooden whisks that they used to make a hot chocolate frothy. And then there are the grinding stones, metates and mocajetes. No blenders at all. <laughs> so it's all the, all the traditional things. Reading cookbooks and raising my gaze on evocative photos, read about the stories of cooks in remote places, is a weakness of mine. And my passion for food books escalated to the point that I became a food writer myself. But have you ever wondered what actually takes place for each and every one of the cookbooks you own to have come to exist? And what happens inside the author's mind and along the journey of food writing? Well, I asked a particularly talented and successful author and chef about this. And here's what Fanny Gerson told me. So when I had the opportunity and then came the research part, it was very overwhelming because it was like, how do I begin? And my father studied anthropology and he used to be a teacher. He actually taught methods of investigation. To me, it's like food anthropology. The first thing I wrote down index cards with every state in Mexico. Right. So I would write stuff that I would know or that I had done research for. I tried to find out if there was some kind of special date um, where there was some kind of celebration tied into a suite or something like that. It gave me a starting point. I would try to set up interviews. I don't know if you encountered this. 
would contact people and from far away and, you know, how to get them to trust you because people are very uh, protective and jealous mm -hmm. of their recipes because that's like the biggest heritage that they have. And they don't want to just share it with anyone. And I would try to explain that it was about documenting to try to give continuity. So once I would go to a state, I would go to the markets and talk to vendors and people buying there. And the last is uh, taxi drivers. Some of the best stories that I was able to experience and learn about were through things that were not researched or planned. I think it's just having like perseverance and patience, you know, open eyes, open mind, open heart. Through the conversations with my guests over the past year, I've tried to cover a large scope of discussions about the challenges and ways in which they value and take care of their customers, their readers and their business partners. And this last aspect is particularly important when it comes to the relationship along the supply chain of products to prepare Mexican food abroad. For many decades, the value of a cuisine was focused on the dishes, the use of ingredients and cooking techniques, and largely it evolved around the cult of the chef as the main figure. But the attention now has shifted towards a more complete understanding of the uniqueness, quality and appreciation of the ingredients themselves, from their production, characteristics of the terroir and the farming cultures. But equally important has been the understanding of the role of fair trade and the use of heritage crops. And this is what Jorge Gaviria, founder of Mastienda, shared about his company's work. It was, it was really a process of discovery for myself and one that continues to this day. You know, when I asked myself the question in 2013, what does the supply chain of corn look like? To me, it wasn't one that was doing as best you know, of a job as we could. And I didn't have to look very much farther than the foodways in Mexico to realize that this was a largely untouched but highly evolved way of growing food and enjoying food, and particularly corn, that didn't have a place in the marketplace in a real scalable way. I think the interesting problems to me were kind of the socioeconomic problems. Masienda works on both sides of those, you know, of the value chain. But as far as the supply chain was concerned, there were three million smallholder farmers, there still are, that produce the highest quality corn in the world. The unbelievable thing to me was that they were growing corn and they didn't have a market to absorb the surplus materials that they would have from year to year. And that is a discouraging process. You know, I, I know that feeling. It's not an easy one to wrap your head around, especially if it's happening year over year. There's not enough income coming from the farm aspect of it. We started to look at that pattern and say, well, what happens if folks are going across the border to work in the United States and there's not enough help on the farm? Well, that means that the genetics that are on the farm are now at risk of you know, potentially not being around for many more generations. That was really something that was compelling for me, and it, it spoke to exactly what I wanted to achieve with a company, which was to create an enormous amount of social and environmental and potentially even political good and nourish people at the same time at the other end of the value chain. We will return with the show after this short break. <laughs> Visiting a Mexican market is like stepping into a universe of vibrant colors, smells, foods and traditions and they are the beating heart of our communities and the nation's culinary powerhouses. And my new book celebrates these prodigious spaces 
and their delicious food. Mexican Market Food is a book for anyone who enjoys the warmth of chiles and the addictive taste of guacamole, but also wants to enter a new dimension of Mexican food, one that will take them straight into the history and present of one of the world's most celebrated cuisines. As a passionate food writer, cook and storyteller, I take you on a life-changing journey and celebrate together the magic of the food of Mexican markets with dozens of delicious traditional recipes that will bring you closer to the real Mexico by discovering the stories and flavors all in a single proverbial basket. Go to bazachipotle.com for Wuslash book and get your digital copy of Mexican market food. Go to bazachipotle.com for Wuslash book and let's celebrate together through every page and every recipe the joy of traditional Mexican cooking. The core value of my work is to facilitate different ways to frame and understand food traditions from Mexico and by extension, the world. But in order to do that, I try to have conversations with different people from specialized disciplines that help me explain the multiple dimensions and roles that food has in our lives and how we have elevated the essential act of eating as one of the most sublime and vital expressions. Food anthropologist Jolene Benjamin shared a wonderful introduction to food studies. So let me start with breaking down um, the word anthropology first. Anthropos is the Greek word for human and ology stands for like scientific studies. So it's basically the studies of people. So food anthropologists look at the socioeconomic, focusing on historically and culturally variable forms of food production, exchange, preparation and consumption as means through which social bodies are constructed and uh, reproduced. When we look at the history of food anthropology, we often refer to anthropologists like Pierre Bourdieu and his work on, on how in society we distinct ourselves from the other through our knowledge on a cuisine or, or uh, a food item, for example, that is used in a form of social capital. So think of the clean eating movement in which people only eat organic, unprocessed foods, which are so-called like clean foods. However, in many cases, in order to afford this, you need certain forms of capital, right? It could be like time, money and knowledge. So in a society where there are many people who cannot afford to put any kind of food on the table, eating clean obviously comes with certain types of power and entitlement. Because who has the time and the capital to actually make all these smoothie bowls? If you look at it through the lens of Bourdieu, you will get an interesting understanding of how society operates and that could shed light on certain injustices and problems when it comes to class, status, race, access, like who has access to food, beauty standards, and so forth and so on. Um, and over the last two decades, food anthropology has really evolved as a discipline, which I think coincides with the complexities that come with and the politicization of a global food system. The expansion of social movements linked to food, feeding a global and growing world population, and the rising contrast between people being undernourished and overweight. Anthropological theories offer a lens through which we can understand those issues. 
As you heard, food anthropology is great at explaining phenomena like food trends and social dynamics, and it can even give us an almost real-time analysis of this. But what about the past? I have long been fascinated by the study of the evolution of gastronomic traditions and how little there is to what some people consider to be pure cuisines. The truth is that, as I've mentioned before, movement, exploration and exchange is part of our human DNA. And it is precisely food history what can help us compare the evolution of cuisines across time and across cultures. This is what the award-winning author and speaker, food historian Ken Albala, said about this. You know, there's a theory that uh, cooking actually made us human, you know, pro put forward evolution. Um, uh, the idea is that our brain capacity only became possible when, you know, increased calories from cooking food, um, you know, allowed our bodies to do other things. But I think, you know, what you're pointing at is that in human civilization, not just in evolution, that our advances in food are kind of the groundwork for every other advance. When you think of almost anything, really, that's a technological advance, if you think of what spurred that on, it really usually is food production or transportation or processing, you know, when you think of like steam engines, well, yeah, okay, they went immediately into railroads, but why? Well, it was to move food around, right? I mean, they were they were moving sides of beef and in cattle cars, and they were using, you know, pressure cookers to can food eventually and to pasteurize it. And, and so I think food is at the center of human activity, but I think that, that it's also a catalyst for almost everything, you know, uh, that happens. If you think of why people went exploring around the world and conquering other people, well, you know, Columbus was looking for spices. He wasn't trying to discover anything. He was trying to get to China. And if you think of why there are colonial empires around the world, well, they were basically there to grow sugar, tropical products, and, and things that, you know, obviously caused a lot of um, hardship and slavery for, for some people. And, you know, so other people could have sugar in their tea, basically. But you, know, you cannot understand history unless you start with food, I think. You know, obviously, when I teach uh, history courses, I think, you know, what really makes things tick is how people get fed. It's it's not the wars and the kings and the big political movements and things. Those are an effect of, of, of getting food, not, not its cause. Historically, we have gone through great lengths in search of food sources. And more recently, not only to survive, but also to enrich our gastronomic culture. And a great example of this is the way in which incredibly different cultures can enthusiastically adopt other foreign cuisines. Here is Silvia Vavik again, telling us how Norway fell in love with Mexican food. I remember when I started doing uh, cooking videos, there was no tortillas in Norway. There was no maseca. Cilantro had just come. And this has to be in like 10 years ago. Even then, I was like, I, I wasn't just my mission was like I wanted to make Mexican food in Norway. There was no Mexican food here. Of course, we had Taco Friday. Noshk taco, Norwegian taco. It is not a Mexican taco. It, this taco resembles Taco Bell taco with the hard shell, the ground beef. It's very bland. But I think what happened, I mean, this is just my opinion. Norwegian food, as I have told you, has very uh, uh, clean tastes. So I, I guess it's just uh, somebody brought this taco to Norway. And I think it was the late 70s. People loved it. There wasn't fast food places. I mean, if you were going to go out to eat, you had to have a lot of money. Going out to eat here and then going out to eat in the States. For example, there is two drive-thrus in Oslo. 
one at the, at each end. And that's the only drive throughs they have. So anytime a new cuisine was introduced to Norway, it got quickly embraced because people wanted, people were curious. They wanted to taste new flavors. And this taco just, it was so easy to make. And they really liked the culture, Mexico, hot, colorful, beautiful women, spicy food. It was just something exotic and new that it was very easy for them to embrace it. Through the years, it's just got more and more and more popular. They were traveling a lot. They really wanted that authentic flavor. Cuisines, just like the universe, expand constantly. And they create infinite forms of fusions that know nothing about geographic, cultural or linguistic boundaries. The food we cook becomes a sort of diary of our personal history, reflecting who we choose to be and what we desire to preserve and pass on. This is what Fanny Gerson shared about her personal experience on her multicultural heritage. For me, being away from home, I always say is what brought me closer to it in a way. I've always loved traditions and we certainly did like the big traditions. When I first moved here, I had nowhere to go. So then I said, well, I'm going to start, you know, to develop them. And then I would call my grandmother and my aunt to try to get the recipes. You know, my grandmother didn't love to cook, but my great grandmother did. And then they had a cook in the house that learned how to make everything. And every time I would call, she would give me a different amount. And I was like, she's being like very protective of my my grandmother's recipe. My great-grandmother passed away when I was very little, but I always felt a very strong connection with her. So anytime I started doing something, you know, very Jewish or for these for these festivities, I always imagined and still do and feel her close to me as though she was guiding me. And maybe it's my imagination. Maybe it's not really there, but I really feel like it's if I'm making the, you know, the matzo balls that she would tell me, no, you know, press them this way, press them that way, because I didn't have that. And I think it's in a very organic way of how I've gotten to share these things. That's how these dinners or events have come about. And they've inspired, you know, a lot of the things uh, that I do. Uh, both come from very rich histories and the commonality lies in the, it's about bringing people together and Food is a vehicle to do that. that. My own cultural blend. If you are under 30 years old and are not Mexican, chances are that you grew up more or less familiar with the difference between what is an interpreted Mexican food, such as Tex-Mex or Calimex, and actual Mexican food. But the truth is that this boom and fascination for Mexican food is actually pretty recent. Moreover, it has evolved quite rapidly. I have expressed many times my opinions about the bastardization of foods, which is not at all the same as taking inspiration. And the consequences that this has over time are really difficult to overturn. For example, the fact that entire generations have grown up thinking that taco shells are an actual Mexican food has sort of made the work of reintroducing an entire cuisine a little bit difficult. This is what Lori Sandoval shared about her experience on this. When the sauce production opportunities started to develop, it just felt very natural. And the more I looked into it and did my market research and realized 
you know, nobody was making cooking sauces for uh, Mexican cuisine. We have it for Indian, Korean, Chinese, you know, all sorts of different ethnic cuisines, but nobody was doing anything more than green enchilada sauce, a red enchilada sauce. That was it. Or a mole. That idea really excited me. I wanted to make sure that we were highlighting traditions in the appropriate way. Also, wanted to honor all those deeply you know, rooted culinary traditions. It was a lot to put on a little brand. I believe that like if you are really careful and um, you have good intention with it, it's going to work and you're going to connect with your consumer um, mainly because you're genuine and it's real. The natural starting place for me was to showcase the, the flavors of my parents' hometowns, Jalisco and Zacatecas, that it just seemed like the natural and like the right way to start the company. While it is easy to get carried away with an over-idealized or romanticized idea of traditional cuisines, as you have heard from my guests, there is very little to be gained from sentimentalism, because ultimately all of them are solving very real problems through their work, like creating gourmet quality products, teaching culinary techniques, generating farm-to-table supply chains, and so on. Each of my guests have engaged with many other initiatives parallel to their work to tackle other very real problems such as food literacy, food scarcity and other key and grave issues that need attention and action. Here is what Yvette shared about her food activism. When they invited me to be a part of this panel, I just was in disbelief. It felt like a dream. And I figured, okay, this is my opportunity to fulfill a dream that I can't shy away from. And it was amazing to sit down and speak to the first lady, Michelle Obama, who I completely looked up to and I still do. She's an amazing woman talking about what I'm passionate about is children and eating healthy meals. It saddens me when I see children, especially in the Latino community, who are affected by obesity. And it's because, you know, the majority of those families are busy working and those children more than likely are making their own food or finding inexpensive places to get fed. And it's not healthy choices. Yeah, now I am a, an advocate for No Kid Hungry. One in six children in America are going hungry, which that statistic always makes me very sad. As a mom alone, it's just a huge passion for me to continue to spread that word and to figure out ways that we can raise money for those efforts. As a food blogger and as an entrepreneurial, as a business person, it's my duty to try and find a way. And so I think it's perfect now with the magic of social media that we can help promote that. Food businesses present such a generous and flexible opportunity to be a conduit for key social messages of environmental awareness, cultural inclusion, and healthier lifestyles, among many other things. This is what Jolene Benjamin shared about the culinary incubator model she co-created in London, England. Together with my two co-founders, I started an initiative that is called Stories on Our Plate. And as we lovingly call it, soup. At this time, it was just before Brexit and after the first wave of the Syrian refugees coming into England. It was a very um, unpleasant, like I, I noticed that how refugees, migrants were talked about in the media. We picked up on that 
and we noticed that this was concerning and uh, we actually wanted to come up with an initiative that would tackle hostility like this unfriendly environment that would not welcome newcomers on the one hand stories on our plate tries to build sustainable connections between newcomer uh, migrant home cooks so wanted to do that that by setting up an ongoing monthly supper club series in a restaurant like setting in which home cooks from a migrant or a refugee background they would share their their cultural foods their recipes and their stories with paying diners food really connects us uh, and on the other hand we really wanted to tackle the barriers that uh, newcomers face in finding employment we did this by uh, developing a culinary training initiative we would immerse them in our network like skill building and employability training this 10-week training program had an outcome that people would have their food handler certificate run their own supper club become employable ready I know the work of this culinary incubator very well, as I have been part of their supper club series in London, and I did the photography and portraits for the book Stories on Our Plate, Recipes and Conversations, which, by the way, you can get absolutely for free if you go to this episode's blog post, and you can find the link on the show's notes. Food businesses and services create a very dynamic ecosystem, and often the relationships transcend commercial transactions and very quickly become part of the city's own social fabric and often gets to play a key role in extreme circumstances when every effort and act of solidarity creates a multiplying effect. This is what Anaïs Martinez shared about her experience in the aftermath of the earthquake that shook Mexico City and many other locations back in September 2017. Everyone just gave away food. You would walk to the streets and you would see food from regular restaurants, from quesadilla stand, just being given away to people who would need it. And that was like the first thing. And right after that, well, you know, like street vendors, they had to stop working for a while because they there was no one in the street. Like the whole city went into like a pause for like the first two, three days. But then after that, they just changed locations and they, because they have to work. At the end of the day, they, if they don't make, they don't work one day, they don't, they get the money for that day. So it just came back really fast. The other restaurants, the restaurants mostly located in the Roma Condesa area, which is both one of the hippest and one of the most damaged areas during the earthquakes. They got together first as a network just to help who, whoever was in need, people who were with no homes and people who were helping. And after that, they came up with this like programs. One of them was called Aquisigo. It means I'm still here. It was like, okay, no. I'm still here, I'm still alive, and you should help us out. We live up the customers, so you should come back. So it was a nice brotherhood. Instead of competing, it was, okay, let's just team up and let people know that it's okay for them to come back. Speaking of labor-intense networks and production chains, there are many and very successful social enterprises that have become value connectors. And that is the case of specialized traders, who are neither farmers nor chefs or cooks, but are doing an enormous amount of work to bring together hyperlocal farming communities to consumers. And this is how Jorge Gaviria came to create his very unique business. 
I guess I suppose we can start with Dan Barber just quickly to touch on it, which is that I was still working at, at Blue Hill, which is his restaurant, when I was putting this idea together. His input was one of just support, and um, I was really inspired by the work that I was doing at Blue Hill in the ethos of the type of work we were doing there, which was maximizing the pleasure that we get from food by being much more intentional about growing produce and vegetables and our relationship with the producers and having a, that dialogue. You know, I saw the benefits of that firsthand of how extraordinary food could taste uh, if there was just more of a connection directly to the source. So I think that process is really the gift that Dan gave to me and everybody who works at Blue Hill. Kind of going back to the first question about specifically about the model, for me, it was a really organic process. And I'm not saying that because, you know, making it sound like it was easy. It No, no part of it was easy, but it was sort of one foot in front of the other. The process was unique, though, in the sense that no one had really attempted, from what I could tell, was this idea of scaling a micro supply chain. Um, and yeah, coffee, absolutely. Uh, coffee is a, uh, it's a cash commodity crop. And corn in Mexico is not uh, largely in the communities that we work in. It's a subsistence crop. So it's an enormous amount of responsibility that we don't take lightly. We're working with the food that is being produced for someone's home and for someone's family and for a community. Because if you have a surplus, you can't just assume that that surplus is meant for the international market. You have to also really appreciate you know, there's a communal aspect to this and that local tortillerias in a small town also should be surviving on this kind of corn and celebrating it. And I'd say that's the most stark contrast between coffee and and corn, particularly heirloom corn that we work with. But yeah, I think it's having that kind of moment right now in corn, without a doubt. And it goes to the heart of connecting to the process, connecting to both the traditions and the agriculture. There used to be a predominant idea that all chefs, restaurateurs, and food business owners in general were incredibly jealous and hyper-competitive, and that the motivation behind their efforts to excel were primarily driven by this competition. Now, that might have been the case, or might still be the case for some, but the truth is that in recent years, chefs and cooks are actually being less interested in dictating the type of food they offer to actually listen to their clients, their suppliers and fellow cooks and have a more horizontal type of relationship with the end consumer. And as I said, now the tendency is to favor collaboration over competition. Here is what Saul Talavera shared about his experience as a food entrepreneur in Las Vegas. People support locals. My customers, from their perspective, they tell me that they eat more uh, like our little street chef culture than they do fast food. And this is the vast majority of my customers. And a lot of my street chef homies, they do the same. We all support each other. We order from each other. People think of this city as a city of sin. Yes, it has that. But it, it's also a big community of people that support each other. That makes us special. You know, most of us um, are trying to pull away people from eating junk food. We try to, to accommodate to everyone. You want vegan options? We have vegan options. And we try to keep it locally, shop locally when it comes to our produce and everything else, you know. You know, we want to provide you with the best, you know, we want to give you a little different taste into our cultures and we want to do it the best way possible. Well, as you have noticed, I really don't shy away from a very rampant fluidity in my approach to having multiple ways to read food traditions and how we interact with these expressions, how we take ownership of it, how we transform it, how we accommodate it to our needs and interests. 
Back when I sat with Suzanne Barbesat, it sort of occurred to me that the case of the hyper-commodification of Frida Kahlo's image and the detachment from the actual person seems to me that it's not too dissimilar as how overinterpreted versions of Mexican food have become almost unrecognizable. On the other hand, it is, you know, also possible that this might be a sort of gateway for people to know more about Mexico's culinary repertoire. So this is the original conversation with Suzanne when we talked about Frida's imagery. More recently, I thought seeing her artwork on posters or things like that, thats uh, it makes people curious about her, I think. And maybe, you know, if they hadn't heard of her before, possibly they will look into her more and find out about what she was all about. But it seems like recently I'll see Frida um, shampoo or sanitary pads or, you know, all kinds of products that have absolutely nothing to do with who she was and what she represented. And I find that sad also, that people are profiting from her name and image. And it's in a way that has nothing to do with who she really was. So yeah, that's sad to me. And I, I don't like that. I mean, recently, there have been more exhibits about her, like there there have been a few in the US, there was one in, in England. And I hope that people take the opportunity to go and see her work and find out more about her life and see what's beyond just that face that we see so much, because there's really a lot to discover about her beyond that. Now, to close this special on a high note, I want to hold on to Professor Canalbala's words about the ultimate enjoyment that it is, the liberating act of cooking without fear or any canonical restrictions. And what an amazing thing is to borrow, inform ourselves, enrich our lives and celebrate our human gastronomic heritage. After all, this has been indeed a collective effort of thousands of people across the world and across history. Doing is far more valuable than passively absorbing. And I think it's the same thing with food, is that you get more out of it when you uh, have an active engagement with your ingredients, you know how they work in, in a pan or in your oven. You know what, if you ruin dinner one night, so what? You'll learn from that experience. You, you figured it out and, it, and it's not a big deal. Um, and I think I think to cook is empowering. It gives you the ability to do what you want, the way you like your food, whatever calories you want to take in, whatever ingredients you want to have. And and I think people should just do it. That most people, when they have company over, they make something they are they know is going to work that they've made many times, and it's going to be a safe bet. I always do exactly the opposite. I try something out that I have no idea if it's going to work when I have company, <laughs> just because I have a I have a captive audience. Why shouldn't I do what's fun? But if people are over, forget it. I'm going to try something new and, and if it doesn't work so what Thank you for listening. This episode was written and produced by me, Rocío Carvajal. I want to thank each and every one of my guests for their generosity and inspiration. 
And especially, I want to thank you, my listeners, for tuning in, sharing your thoughts about the show, and for being a part of this project. To support Pass the Chipotle, please subscribe and review this podcast on the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, Stitcher, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you are listening. Be sure to scroll down to this episode's notes to get the links to read more about my guests, subscribe to my newsletter, and get other additional information mentioned on today's episode. Send me your comments, questions, or reach out to say hi on Instagram, Twitter, or email. You can write me to hello at pasachipotle.com. Well, that's it for this week, my friends. Until the next time.